Chapter 15 of That Affair Next Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording today by Don Larson in Minnesota. That Affair Next Door by Anna K. Green. Chapter 15 A Reluctant Witness. A pause of decided duration now followed an exasperating pause which tried even me, much as I pride myself upon my patience. There seemed to be some hitch in regard to the next witness. The coroner sent Mr. Grice into the neighboring room more than once, and finally, when the general uneasiness seemed on the point of expressing itself by a loud murmur, a gentleman stepped forth, whose appearance, instead of allaying the excitement, renewed it in quite an unprecedented and remarkable way. I did not know the person thus introduced. He was a handsome man, a very handsome man if the truth must be told, but it did not seem to be this fact which made half the people there crane their heads to catch a glimpse of him. Something else, something entirely disconnected with his appearance there as a witness, appeared to hold the people enthralled and waken a subdued enthusiasm which showed itself not only in smiles, but in whispers and significant nudges, chiefly among the women, though I noticed that the jurymen stared when somebody obliged them with the name of this new witness. At last it reached my ears, and though it awakened in me also a decided curiosity, I restrained all expression of it, being unwilling to add one jot to this ridiculous display of human weakness. Randolph Stone, as the intended husband of the rich Miss Althorpe, was a figure of some importance in the city, and while I was very glad of this opportunity of seeing him, I did not propose to lose my head or forget, in the marked interest his person invoked, the very serious cause which had brought him before us. And yet, I suppose, no one in the room observed his figure more minutely. He was elegantly made and possessed, as I have said, a face of peculiar beauty. But these were not his only claims to admiration. He was a man of undoubted intelligence and great distinction of manner. The intelligence did not surprise me, knowing as I did how he had raised himself to his present enviable position in society in the short space of five years. But the perfection of his manner astonished me, though how I could have expected anything less in a man honored by Miss Althorpe's regard, I cannot say. He had that clear pallor of complexion, which in a smooth-shaven face is so impressive, and his voice when he spoke had that music in it which only comes from great cultivation and a deliberate intent to please. He was a friend of Howard's that I saw by the short look that passed between them when he first entered the room, but that it was not as a friend he stood there was apparent from the state of amazement with which the former recognized him, as well as from the regret to be seen underlying the polished manner of the witness himself. Though perfectly self-possessed and perfectly respectful, he showed by every means possible the pain he felt in adding one featherweight to the evidence against a man with whom he was on terms of more or less intimacy. But let me give his testimony. Having acknowledged that he knew the Van Burnham family well, and Howard in particular, 
he went on to state that on the night of the seventeenth he had been detained at his office by business of a more than usual pressing nature and finding that he could expect no rest for that night humored himself by getting off the cars at twenty-first street instead of proceeding on to thirty-third street where his apartments were the smile which these words caused miss althorpe lives on twenty-first street woke no corresponding light on his face indeed he frowned at it as if he felt that the gravity of the situation admitted of nothing frivolous or humorsome and this feeling was shared by howard for he started when the witness mentioned twenty-first street and cast him a haggard look of dismay which happily no one saw but myself for every one else was concerned with the witness or should i say except mr gryce i had of course no intentions beyond a short stroll through this street previous to returning to my home continued the witness gravely and am sorry to be obliged to mention this freak of mine but find it necessary in order to account for my presence there at so unusual an hour you need make no apologies returned the coroner will you state on what line of cars you came from your office i came up third avenue ah and walked towards broadway yes so that you necessarily passed very near the van burnham mansion yes at what time was this can you say at four or nearly four it was half past three when i left my office was it light at that hour could you distinguish objects readily i had no difficulty in seeing and what did you see anything amiss at the van burnham mansion no sir nothing amiss i merely saw howard van burnham coming down the stoop as i went by the corner you made no mistake it was the gentleman you name and no other whom you saw on this stoop at this hour i am very sure that it was he i am sorry but the coroner gave him no opportunity to finish you and mr van burnham are friends you say and it was light enough for you to recognize each other then you probably spoke no we did not i was thinking well of other things and here he allowed the ghost of a smile to flit suggestively across his firm-set lips and mr van burnham seemed preoccupied also for as far as i know he did not even look my way and you did not stop no he did not look like a man to be disturbed and this was at four on the morning of the eighteenth at four are you certain of the hour and of the day i am certain i should not be standing here if i were not very sure of my memory i am sorry he began again but he was stopped as peremptorily as before by the coroner feeling has no place in an inquiry like this and the witness was dismissed mr stone who had manifestly given his evidence under compulsion looked relieved at its termination as he passed back to the room from which he had come many only noticed the extreme elegance of his form and the proud cast of his head but i saw more than these i saw the look of regret he cast at his friend howard a painful silence followed his withdrawal then the coroner spoke to the jury gentlemen i leave you to judge of the importance of this testimony mr stone is a well-known man of unquestionable integrity but perhaps mr van burnham can explain how he came to visit his father's house 
at four o'clock in the morning on that memorable night, when, according to his latest testimony, he left his wife there at twelve. We will give him the opportunity. There is no use, began the young man, from the place where he sat, but gathering courage, even while speaking, he came rapidly forward, and facing the coroner and jury once more, said with a false kind of energy that imposed upon no one, I can explain this fact, but I doubt if you will accept my explanation. I was at my father's house at that hour, but not in it. My restlessness drove me back to my wife, but not finding the keys in my pocket, I came down the stoop again and went away. Ah, I see now why you prevaricated this morning in regard to the time when you missed those keys. I know that my testimony is full of contradictions. You feared to have it known that you were on the stoop of your father's house for the second time that night. Naturally, in face of the suspicion I perceived everywhere about me. And this time you did not go in? No. Nor ring the bell? No. Why not, if you left your wife within, alive and well? I did not wish to disturb her. My purpose was not strong enough to surmount the least difficulty. I was easily deterred from going where I had little wish to be. So that you merely went up the stoop and down again at the time Mr. Stone saw you? Yes, and if he had passed a minute sooner he would have seen this. Seen me go up, I mean, as well as seen me come down. I did not linger long in the doorway. But you did linger there a moment? Yes, long enough to hunt for the keys and get over my astonishment at not finding them. Did you notice Mr. Stone going by on 21st Street? No. Was it as light as Mr. Stone has said? Yes, it was light. And you did not notice him? No. Yet you must have followed very closely behind him. Not necessarily. I went by the way of 20th Street, sir. Why, I do not know, for my rooms are uptown. I do not know why I did half the things I did that night. I can readily believe it, remarked the coroner. Mr. Van Burnham's indignation rose. You are trying, said he, to connect me with the fearful death of my wife in my father's lonely house. You cannot do it, for I am as innocent of that death as you are, or any other person in this assemblage. Nor did I pull those shelves down upon her as you would have this jury think, in my last thoughtless visit to my father's door. She died according to God's will, by her own hand or by means of some strange and unaccountable accident known only to him. And so you will find, if justice has any place in these investigations, and a manly intelligence be allowed to take the place of prejudice in the breasts of the twelve men now sitting before me. And bowing to the coroner, he waited for his dismissal and receiving it walked back not to his lonely corner, but to his former place between his father and brother, who received him with a wistful air and strange looks of mingled hope and disbelief. The jury will render their verdict on Monday morning, announced the coroner, and adjourned the inquiry. End of chapter 15 End of book 1 Book 2 The Windings of a Labyrinth Chapter 16 Cogitations My cook had prepared for me a most excellent dinner, 
thinking that I needed all the comfort possible after a day of such trying experiences. But I ate little of it. My thoughts were too busy, my mind too much exercised. What would be the verdict of the jury, and could this especial jury be relied upon to give a just verdict? At seven I had left the table and was shut up in my own room. I could not rest till I had fathomed my own mind in regard to the events of the day. The question, the great question, of course, now, was how much of Howard's testimony was to be believed, and whether he was, notwithstanding his asseverations, to the contrary, the murderer of his wife. To most persons the answer seemed easy. From the expression of such people as I had jostled in leaving the courtroom, I judged that his sentence had already been passed in the minds of most there present. But these hasty judgments did not influence me. I hope I looked deeper than the surface, and my mind would not subscribe to his guilt, notwithstanding the bad impression made upon me by his falsehoods and contradictions. Now why would not my mind subscribe to it? Had sentiment got the better of me, Amelia Butterworth, and was I no longer capable of looking things squarely in the face? Had the Van Burnhams, of all people in the world, awakened my sympathies at the cost of my good sense? And was I disposed to see virtue in a man in whom every circumstance, as it came to light, revealed little but folly and weakness? The lies he had told, for there is no other word to describe his contradictions, would have been sufficient under most circumstances to condemn a man in my estimation. Why, then, did I secretly look for excuses to his conduct? Probing the matter to the bottom, I reasoned in this way. The latter half of his evidence was a complete contradiction of the first, purposely so. In the first he made himself out a cold-hearted egotist, with not enough interest in his wife to make an effort to determine whether she and the murdered woman were identical. In the latter he showed himself in the light of a man influenced to the point of folly by a woman to whom he had been utterly unyielding a few hours before. Now knowing human nature to be full of contradictions, I could not satisfy myself that I should be justified in accepting either half of his testimony as absolutely true. The man who is all firmness one minute may be all weakness the next, and in face of the calm assertions made by this one when driven to bay by the unexpected discoveries of the police, I dared not decide that his final assurances were altogether false, and that he was not the man I had seen enter the adjoining house with his wife. Why, then, not carry the conclusion farther, and admit, as reason and probability suggested, that he was also her murderer, that he had killed her during his first visit, and drawn the shelves down upon her in the second? Would not this account for all the phenomena to be observed in connection with this otherwise unexplainable affair? certainly all but one one that was perhaps known to nobody but myself and that was the testimony given by the clock it said that the shelves fell at five whereas according to mr stone's evidence it was four or thereabouts when mr van burnham left his father's house but the clock might not have been a reliable witness it might have been set wrong or it might not have been running at all at the time of the accident 
No, it would not do for me to rely too much upon anything so doubtful, nor did I. Yet I could not rid myself of the conviction that Howard spoke the truth when he declared in face of coroner and jury that they could not connect him with this crime, and whether this conclusion sprang from sentimentality or intuition, I was resolved to stick to it for the present night at least. The morrow might show its futility, but the morrow had not come. Meanwhile, with this theory accepted, what explanation could be given of the very peculiar facts surrounding this woman's death? Could the supposition of suicide advanced by Howard before the coroner be entertained for a moment, or that equally improbable suggestion of accident? Going to my bureau drawer, I drew out the old grocer bill, which has already figured in these pages, and reread the notes I had scribbled on its back early in the history of this affair. They related, if you will remember, to this very question, and seemed even now to answer it in a more or less convincing way. Will you pardon me if I transcribe these notes again, as I cannot imagine my first deliberations on this subject, to have made a deep enough impression for you to recall them without help from me. The question raised in these notes was threefold, and the answers, as you will recollect, were transcribed before the cause of death had been determined by the discovery of the broken pin in the dead woman's brain. These are the queries. First, was her death due to accident? Second, was it effected by her own hand? Third, was it a murder? The replies given are in the form of reasons as witness. My reason for not thinking it an accident. If it had been an accident, and she had pulled the cabinet over upon herself, she would have been found with her feet pointing towards the wall where the cabinet had stood. But her feet were towards the door and her head under the cabinet. 2. The precise arrangement of the clothing about her feet which precluded any theory involving accident. My reason for not thinking it a suicide. She could not have been found in the position observed without having lain down on the floor while living and then pulled the shelves down upon her, a theory obviously too improbable to be considered. My reason for not thinking it murder. She would need to have been held down on the floor while the cabinet was being pulled over on her, a thing which the quiet aspect of the hands and feet make appear impossible. Very good, but we know now that she was dead when the shelves fell over, so that my one excuse for not thinking it murder is rendered null. My reasons for thinking it a murder, but I will not repeat these, my reasons for not thinking it an accident or a suicide, remained as good as when they were written, and if her death had not been due to either of these causes, then it must have been due to some murderous hand. Was that hand the hand of her husband? I have already given it as my opinion that it was not. Now, how to make that opinion good and reconcile me again to myself, for I am not accustomed to having my instincts at war with my judgment. Is there any reason for my thinking as I do? Yes, the manliness of the man. He only looked well when he was repelling the suspicion he saw in the surrounding faces. But that might have been assumed, just as his careless manner was assumed during the early part of the inquiry. 
I must have some stronger reason than this for my belief. The two hats? Well, he had explained how there came to be two hats on the scene of the crime, but his explanation had not been very satisfactory. I had seen no hat in her hand when she crossed the pavement to her father's house, but then she might have carried it under her cape without my seeing it, perhaps. The discovery of two hats and of two pairs of gloves in Mr. Van Burnham's parlors was a fact worth further investigation, and mentally I made a note of it, though at the moment I saw no prospect of engaging in this matter further than my duties as a witness required. And now, what other clue was offered me, save the one I have already mentioned as being given by the clock? none that i could seize upon and feeling the weakness of the cause i had so obstinately embraced i rose from my seat at the tea-table and began making such alterations in my toilet as would prepare me for the evening and my inevitable callers amelia said i to myself as i encountered my anything but satisfied reflection in the glass can it be that you ought after all to have been called Araminta, is a momentary display of spirit on the part of a young man of doubtful principles, enough to make you forget the dictates of good sense which have always governed you up to this time? The stern image which confronted me from the mirror made no reply, and smitten with sudden disgust, I left the glass and went below to greet some friends who had just ridden up in their carriage. They remained one hour, and they discussed one subject, Howard Van Burnham and his probable connection with the crime which had taken place next door. But though I talked some and listened more, as it is proper for a woman in her own house, I said nothing and heard nothing which had not already been said and heard in numberless homes that night. Whatever thoughts I had which in any way differed from those generally expressed, I kept to myself. Whether guided by discretion or pride, I cannot say. Probably both, for I am not deficient in either quality. Arrangements had already been made for the burial of Mrs. Van Burnham that night, and as the funeral ceremony was to take place next door, many of my guests came just to sit in my windows and watch the coming and going of the few people invited to the ceremony. But I discouraged this, I have no patience with idle curiosity. Consequently, by nine I was left alone to give the affair such real attention as it demanded, something which, of course, I could not have done with a half-dozen gossiping friends leaning over my shoulder. End of chapter 16